Hi, everyone. This is Michael Cox for the In Common Podcast. For today's episode, I am joined by guest host, Karen Bielek. Hi, Karen. Hi, Michael. So, Karen, before we get started, I think it'd be great for listeners to learn a little bit about you. So could you talk to me for a bit about your personal and professional background, including where you're from, where you got your PhD, and what you focused on during your PhD work, and what you've been doing since then? Sure. So I live in Maine, and I am from Maine, grew up also in New Hampshire, and I did my PhD at the University of Maine, Orono, and I in the Department of Communication and with the Mitchell Center for Sustainability Solutions. So my PhD was an interdisciplinary PhD in communication and sustainability science. For the communication aspects, I, I focused on um, group collaboration and environmental communication. And primarily as part of the Sustainability Solutions Initiative at UMaine, which was a large NSF grant focused on um, developing sustainable solutions through the state in interdisciplinary, transdisciplinary teams. And in that work, I focused on community university collaborations, largely at the municipal level. And so uh, got to you know, chat with folks in municipal government and um, try to understand how they were, what kind of sustainability issues they were experiencing and how they were addressing them. And then importantly, how they saw university and college collaborators playing a role in, in helping address these challenges. And so Karen, could you, you give the listeners a little bit of background about how we met? You and I met when I joined the Department of Environmental Studies as the practice-based learning specialist, um, working with the Africa Foreign Study Program and in other environmental studies courses, uh, where I'm focusing on helping connect courses and students and faculty with community collaborators. And I don't know if you said that's at Dartmouth. I don't know if that was actually mentioned, but yeah, we work, oh, okay. we, we work together at Dartmouth. Want me to say it over again? No, I think that's great. Okay. I think we should just keep all of this to what we're saying right now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, that's how I met you. What was like five years ago, six years? I mean, the, the years are starting to kind seven. of compress seven years. Oh my seven God. Seven years ago. Okay. Yep. And now actually we're, I mean, this interview is relevant for our newest collaboration, which is going to be this off-campus program where we're going to go to Maine. And you and I are actually playing that program right now, the fisheries part of it. Yes. We have a lot of exciting collaborators to meet, and I'm excited partially because it brings together two of my worlds, my Dartmouth world and my University of Maine, uh, Maine world. Awesome. And for today's episode, we're talking to a friend of yours. That's correct? Yes. Friday and I did our doctoral work together. We're close collaborators throughout, uh, comrades. <laughs> And, um, and has, she's been a really important collaborator for me since that time. And uh, I've just been fascinated by her work. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to this interview. I hope you all are too. This is the In Common Podcast. So today we're speaking with Dr. Bridie McCreevey. Bridie is an Associate Professor of Environmental Communication in the Department of Communication and Journalism at the University of Maine. And she's also a faculty fellow with the Senator George J. Mitchell Center for Sustainability Solutions, also at UMaine. 
Bridie grew up in Maine with deep roots in the Saco River watershed. And she is one of my favorite people to explore the woods with because she knows the flora and fauna so well. And each walk with Bridie is uh, educational as we stoop to look at animals, tracks and scat or plants along the trail. So thanks for joining us today, Bridie. Thanks for having me, I'm glad to be here. So Bridie, you're a communication professor now, but I know you did not start your career that way in the social sciences. So tell us, uh, what made you pursue your PhD in communication? Why make that pivot? Yeah, I had a number of experiences in my early career that just made me deeply interested in communication. Uh, so connecting with that nice introduction that you just gave, I worked for about a decade at an organization called Lakes Environmental Association as an environmental educator. It was like the best job ever, basically, because I spent a lot of time out in the woods with people of all ages and just talking with them about, you know, the trees and, and the, the history of the place and geology, um, the relationship between human action and environmental quality. Um, and then more than that, too, of like the deep attachments that we formed to place and how those are, are uh, shaped through communication. Um, and at the time, I mean, because I was working in an education setting, I, w I wasn't necessarily thinking about it as communication. <laughs> so I had some additional experiences as part of a grad program at Antioch University, New England, um, where I was doing research on um, vernal pools. And part of the reason I was doing this research on vernal pools is that, like, in my environmental education work, these small wetlands in forested ecosystems were just ready-made <laughs> for making those kinds of connections and helping people find frogs and salamanders and move them across the road and, and all of these kinds of things. So I had, you know, this, this connection to, to this uh, ecosystem. And I wanted to understand it from a research perspective and to do research in such a way that it would be meaningful for, you know, uh, vernal pool conservation. I was going through my grad program uh, at the same time that the state of Maine was working through a policy to protect what they were calling significant vernal pools. And these are pools that met certain biological criteria. Um, and so I wanted to understand like the implementation of that law and the extent to which municipal officials knew about it or communities were supportive of it. Um, and it was really through that study that I backed into the field of communication. So much of what I was learning about vernal pool conservation was really about the phenomenon of environmental and science communication related forms of communication. Um, so that opened my eyes to this whole field. Um, and, and I had a, an advisor uh, in my master's program, Tom Webler, who encouraged me to consider a PhD in, in communication or social sciences. Um, and I thought, well, maybe I'll do that, <laughs> but it would need to be in Maine. You know, it would need to focus on sustainability and conservation. Uh, it would need to focus on, you know, environmental communication it would need to be funded. Um, and I never thought that was gonna happen. 2010, it did, <laughs> so serendipitously, I made that turn into the field. Excellent. And that is where we originally met. Was that the university? Yes, exactly. Mitchell yeah. Center propelled all of our careers forward. <laughs> yeah. So since your PhD and during your PhD, a primary focus of your research was on the shellfish fisheries in Maine and especially wild clams and mussels. So you've kind of started in the vernal pools, but then you moved to the coast. Um, yeah. What drew you to that work and what has kept your interest there for the past decade? 
Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that drew both of us and a number of other people to the Mitchell Center uh, and the work that we were doing through the Sustainability Solutions Initiative, or SSI, was, you know, this approach that, that we refer to as sustainability science, you know, that we're interested in producing knowledge in ways that make a difference, that connect with the priorities and the problems of, of community partners, and that aim to link multiple forms of knowledge with decision-making. Uh, so those commitments were really central to uh, the experience that I had as a PhD student. And one of the things that I, I did early on is I ended up uh, connecting with one of the community partner organizations that was involved in, in SSI, the Frenchman Bay Partners. Um, I started showing up at their meetings where they were involved in this conservation action planning process, um, trying to, to follow these open standards, but also do it in such a way so that this eventual conservation action plan wasn't just going to like sit dusty on a shelf, right? They wanted to like build the capacity to really be able to implement whatever objectives they identified within this plan. And so I heard them talking about wanting to connect with this interesting group of, of um, people, community members and clam harvesters in the region who had organized into a seven town uh, cooperative that's known as the Frenchman Bay Regional Shellfish Committee. But one of the issues that they were having is that they were having these you know, conservation action planning meetings, um, pretty highly technical and scientific, a lot of you know, researchers and nonprofit organizations uh, who were showing up, but they had a hard time getting the clam harvesters to come to their meetings and engage that process. And so I started going to their meetings, uh, which took place in um, you know, a small town hall in Lemoyne, Maine. Um, there are about you know, 70 harvesters involved in this program, and at any meeting, 20 to 30 would show up. And I found myself, even though I grew up in Maine, just stepping into a world that I didn't even know existed, and, and seeing people, you know, um, make shared decisions, uh, go through that messy process of, of negotiation, creating meaning together, um, making hard choices about, you know, number of licenses and things like, you know, closing down mudflats so that they can recover. Um, and then, you know, supporting each other in a number of different ways. And, um, by by listening to what was going on in those settings, I also came to a better understanding of what would be valuable for engaged communication research. And so I started crafting that with with the clam harvesters. Um, and, you know, it just has taken on a life of its own, literally, <laughs> in many different ways, which I think is is what knowledge co-production is all about, right? And that, that relationship between sustainability science and producing knowledge in these kinds of ways. So I hear you saying you, in the beginning, you just sort of showed up. That was an important first step for you. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And and in a mode of listening, right? Of like, um, of that beginner's mind in, in a Buddhist sense of just being open and trying to learn from what was going on within the situation. And and to use that also as a, a, a starting point for building relationships. Uh, because those relationships have really become essential to the kind of engaged research that we've been doing and the, the number of different projects that we've created. I want to get more into that in terms of you know, your strategies for collaboration. That seems like um, this idea of showing up and of starting point for relationships, really being open to learning, um, has been foundational for your collaboration. So if you could tell us a little bit more 
Um, I mean, we know you've talked about the importance of collaborations and sustainability science in addressing solutions um, that you mm -hmm. need not only this interdisciplinary group of colleagues across academia, but partners outside of academia where we're being responsive um, to, to need the needs of all the people in the partnership. Um, we also know these collaborations are really hard and messy as you as you referenced. Mm -hmm. So tell us about the approaches um, that you've used in your collaboration, where you've seen some successes, but also where you've seen some failures. Or struggles. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. Uh, I really more recently have been thinking with Anna Singh's discussions of, of collaboration. Um, and, and more her most recent book, The Mushroom at the End of the World, where she really notices the, the tensions in collaboration and describes them as contaminated and, and as being shaped by these frictions. Uh, and I find that to be a productive way of thinking about collaboration because, you know, on the one hand, collaborations are essential for the kinds of successes that, that we're having and many others are having in, in terms of sustainability issues. And then at, on the other hand, um, those who've been involved in collaborations know the, the, the labor, right? The, the word labor that's built right into there, that, that really um, effortful process that to remember the another meaning associated with labor can birth something new, right? That it's just that, that effort, uh, that work is essential for, for making something new. And it, it's, um, it's definitely not easy. Um, in terms of, of uh, strategies, there are a number of different things. I think uh, first and foremost, uh, there are relational strategies that are really important and that these are, these are capacities that we try and cultivate um, together and, and over time. Um, listening, as I've already mentioned, is, is key for that. Um, but one of the issues with listening is like, it's, it's, it's so easy to say, oh, well, we just need to listen to each other. Right, but our dominant cultural model of listening is relatively passive. If you if you type in listening into a, a search engine, you'll see like images of big ears, right? <laughs> or you emphasize the nonverbal, like I know Karen, you're listening to me because you're not you're nodding, right? Um, and that's that's all part of it, right? We do communicate in those ways, and it and there are nonverbal elements of it, but listening is also um, contextual, like what it means to listen in any this setting is going to be shaped by the situation itself. Um, we might think of that as, as ecological. Um, and that there are these like fine grained practices that matter, right? Like meeting minutes are a really common one and the, the types of norms that go along with meeting minutes, but the extent to which people who are involved in a collaborative process see their voice expressed in these kinds of, of records. Um, is part of listening practice as well. So it's, yeah, it's asking that question of what does it mean for us to listen well to each other? And then how can you think about listening beyond um, like the human-centered approach <laughs> to listening, to think about like just being out in a space together. And one of the things I'm so excited about being um, moving into a space of post-pandemic world, hopefully, um, is, is getting back out into mudflats with people um, because just just standing with each other um, can be a form of listening as well in an, an embodied sense. So listening is key, but then also not taking listening for granted, um, exploring what it, what it really means. Related to that, 
uh, reflexivity of, you know, reflecting as part of a social practice of, you know, you might think this is checking in with partners and, and talking openly about the communication, you know, doing that like meta cognition or meta, meta communication, the communication about the communication and how things are going, creating spaces for that, um, is essential. Um, and, and the ability to do that, I think is enhanced by practicing commitments to humility, um, of, of recognizing that, you know, one's perspective may not be the same as, as somebody else's and, and using communication as a way of exploring those kinds of differences. Um, so those are some of the, like the processual or relational commitments that are, are really key. Um, and then there have been other strategies, like more technical types of approaches um, that I've used in a number of different situations. You and I have, have talked a lot about this in terms of the sustainability work and, um, you know, our work on boundary spanning and boundary objects of, you know, these maps and technical reports and other kinds of artifacts that can share information in a pragmatic sense of like helping people have access that, to knowledge and um, promoting that kind of that learning. Um, but then these, these artifacts can also create um, social processes and ways of people coming together and, and negotiating meaning and, and producing new understanding. Um, and I've been increasingly interested in, um, you know, different kinds of writing genres, like what we would think of as, as boundary objects, specific boundary objects, things like websites um, or, or maps um, and the kind of social work, the, you know, the, the forms of connection that those types of objects open up. Um, and then he also asked about challenges. <laughs> I feel like I've been going on for a bit now. Do you want me to say, talk about some of the challenges too, or is that before we move on to the challenges, I wanted to make this. So you talked about these technical pieces with the boundary objects as as being yeah. um, a way to get people to um, to share meaning and to create shared meaning. And thinking back to this idea of reflexivity, is that one of the tools you use to to help with reflexivity? How, what kind of strategies do you use with that? It feels like that's a, one of those harder things to get people to do collaboratively because it's such a personal, yeah. such a personal process. Yep. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know there was necessarily thinking about it in that way, but, but your question makes me think, yeah, no, that's, that's definitely part of the social work that's happening in the use of boundary objects. And one of the specific types of boundary objects I know that you and I have used in some of our collaborative work is, is the development of a memorandum of understanding or an MOU, right? Like on the one hand, this is a best practice. People talk about this for, for engaged and community-based research. You need to develop these MOUs. Uh, sometimes they're approached as an overly formal document or process, and, and that can make people uncomfortable. It's like, oh, we're entering into a partnership. Let me give you the MOU, right? It <laughs> just feels like maybe constrained. Um, but at the same time, they don't have to be. They can really be very basic. And they do create a space for people to position themselves and say, this is how I see my own uh, responsibilities for, for this work. And here are the expectations I have for your work. And does that align with, with your understanding? So it can be a pretty structured 
I mean, open-ended in the sense that it doesn't have to be like overly determined for the different like sections that you might have, but structured in, in the focus on the respective rights and responsibilities of people who are involved in a collaborative project. And then, you know, we've taken a collaborative approach to um, developing multiple websites. One of the most recent ones that we developed is called the Mud Flat. We see a similar thing there of like, you know, as researchers, um, we're trying to share information about different applied shellfish projects. And, you know, in our first pass on the, the website, we're describing our understanding of those projects. But then we're sharing it back with our partners and they're going to come back and say, no, that's that is not how I understand this work. And here, here are the edits that you need to make. So, yeah, that's definitely a practice of reflexivity. And the mud flat, from what I understand it, also um, embodies or uses um, draws on Wabanaki languages and understandings of the shellfish fisheries. Yeah, just more about that and that process that that you're using with those community partners. Yeah, yeah. So the mud flat is sponsored by the Maine Shellfish Learning Network or MSLN, and the the mission of the learning network um, is an evolving process. <laughs> Actually, we treat our mission as a metaphor in the sense that we see uh, the mission as as being about movement and that it can change over time. Um, and so the current mission is to promote learning leadership and equity in Maine and Wabanaki wild clam and mussel fisheries. And the focus on uh, the Wabanaki uh, shellfish fisheries um, has been one that has emerged in the context of the, the ongoing work that I've described um, uh, that started within Frenchman Bay and then really took more of a, a coastwide state of Maine focus and where we've increasingly, through dialogue, through partnerships with people like Tony Sutton, who is currently our community food facilitator and himself, Pat McQuaddy, a good friend <laughs> for both of us. We did our grad program together. Um, and Dr. Darren Ranko, who's in the um, anthropology department at University of Maine and uh, chair of Native American programs and a number of other people. Um, where we've, we've, you know, through the dialogue and partnerships, recognize the need to decolonize uh, the focus on shellfishing. Um, so, for example, uh, Darren and I and others were involved in a project called the Safe Beaches and Shellfish Project, um, where uh, one of Darren's responsibilities was to, to lead the Wabanaki Youth and Science Program, um, that integration of that program into the Safe Beaches and Shellfish, as well as connect with Passamaquoddy interests in water quality. Um, and ultimately, we did that, but it, it took a long time for us to get there because initially we were prioritizing state-based interests in, in water quality science and decision-making. Um, and so we've been able to learn from that and carry that forward into uh, the work that we're currently doing with the Maine Shellfish Learning Network. Um, and, you know... It, this, the efforts for decolonization are taking multiple forms. And I, before I talk about the language-based practices, I would just also emphasize that first and foremost, you're trying to support processes that honor and respect tribal sovereignty. So one of our priorities is to support the negotiations around the Maine Indian, Maine Indian Claims Settlement Act, which was originally passed in, in 1980. Um, and that's a very important um, document for establishing federal recognition 
um, for Wabanaki tribal nations. Um, however, um, it has a number of problems and limitations, and the Wabanaki Alliance, along with other Wabanaki peoples, are leading efforts to renegoti- renegotiate some of those terms um, to more fully respect tribal sovereignty. So we're doing we're doing some research to support those negotiations, um, and we take seriously, uh, you know, the idea that decolonization needs to be about um, the restoration of, of rights um, and, and land, um, ideally. Um, but we also see language as essential for um, realizing those justice aims. Um, and so in, in our work on the mudflat, uh, what you'll see is very intentional use of uh, Wabanaki place names to engage in that work of um, renaming places um, and, and remembering that all of our work and lives uh, occurs within Wabanaki homelands. Those efforts that you're talking about are the strategies, the um, respect that you're giving to the fruit, to your community collaborators seem to align with that, what you've been talking about all along, these ideas of listening and reflexivity, um, and then the use of you know, these technical objects or technical strategies too that you can use, it's direct research that you can provide to support these processes. So you've talked quite a bit about communication keeps coming up as we would imagine that it would. Um, (laughs) So talk to us more specifically as someone who's listening to this and thinking about, maybe they don't know anything about the field of communication. What does this field offer us to help us develop and maintain our partnerships? I know that's a really broad question. So, you know, if you have some specific examples or some specific things, you know, how has it really informed your work in this in this space. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think back on the perception about communication I had when, you know, I made the turn to the field in the, the early stages of my PhD and how I came into communication really wanting those words that would work, right? I wanted the persuasive messages. I wanted to be able to convince people that climate change was happening, that we needed to do something about it. Um, and, and that impulse is still there for me <laughs> in some ways. Um, but at the same time, you know, it, it was a case of, I didn't know what I didn't know about the diversity of perspectives and traditions within communication studies. Um, and so I was reflecting, Karen, about our first National Communication Association Conference. Do you remember this? Out in San Francisco? <laughs> yeah. Very and overwhelming. Like, I remember... <laughs> Yes, exactly. I, and I remember distinctly like walking into, and it was our first academic conference, right? Um, but walking into this big hotel, about to go to a conference with, you know, communication researchers from, from around the United States. And it just, just noticing the, the buzz, right? And the diversity of people in the room, which I think is very much connected to, you know, the 25 plus different interest groups that are associated with NCA and, and a number of different ways in which you can approach communication, many of which are connected to different kinds of contexts, like, you know, organizational communication, environmental, science communication, interpersonal, 
family communication, small group. I mean, we could go on and on. And I'm not even getting into like media studies and journalism, right, as, as related fields. So I find that diversity to be incredibly enhancing, um, especially when you're working in these complex collaborations where communication, multiple forms of communication um, are, are shaping the work that you're doing together. So communication gives tools, uh, orientations for attending to that kind of diversity and, and making informed choices about how to adjust communication over time as needed. Your work focuses quite a bit on, on dialogue and um, collaboration. You know, some, some might say it's small group communication, but you've also drawn on no other forms when you think about websites, etc. Um, in recent conversations, you've talked about the role of communication in collaboration and learning. Can you talk more about mm -hmm. that relationship and the, specifically the role of, as you're seeing, communication in, in facilitating the learning and collaboration? Yeah. Um, I think, you know, in part, it connects with my, my very simple, but I think still <laughs> um, important definition of learning that, you know, learning is about change. And this is like a process philosophy orientation. Um, and so it's, it's a matter of thinking about, you know, how communication can promote and, and also kind of allow one to be ready um, to respond to, to different kinds of change and to bring knowledge to bear on on that responsiveness. Um, so, you know, this, this emphasis on learning, um, at least in part, has come out of some observations that I've made in the work that we've been doing in the shellfish fishery, where um, this is true in French and Bay, but I think it's true, you know, in um, shellfish co-management and shellfish communities across the coast, where you see people really showing up for climate change. Like, there's some incredible adaptation that's going on in these these uh, the small scale fishery, and yet you know one town might be doing you know um, seeding, putting like baby clams into the mud flat and and netting them, and then doing pH studies and involving students in innovative ways, and and the next town over could be doing similar things, maybe with their own twist on it, and. In, in most cases, there's very limited connectivity. They're not sharing information. They're not connecting about what they're they're figuring out as they go along. Um, and I saw how you know the one day a year that people from ac across the coast are meeting, and this is a shellfish focus day it's associated with the annual Maine Fishermen's Forum. Usually happens in the beginning of March. I saw how valuable that one day was as people would come and you know, share information about what they were working on in their towns, uh, share scientific information for the researchers who were attending to get updates about policy information. And I was also, because I was doing ethnographic research and continue to do so, going back to the shellfish committees and seeing people who attended that meeting then share what they had heard um, and, and passing that along. And I thought, we need to leverage that, <laughs> right? We, we need to figure out processes uh, and forums where um, that kind of connectivity can be enhanced. That last statement you had said about the meeting and then bringing it to this other forum to present what they heard echoes back to those original ideas that you talked about, learning and reflexivity. But those, this forum provides a, pro, a, 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 a space to do that. 
So it's yeah. all connected here. Yeah. So we haven't gotten into the shellfish fishery as much um, you know, in our discussion, but I think um, I wanna pivot a little bit, change, change direction a little bit and talk a little more about that fishery. Um, it's been important to coastal communities for millennia. So I wanna learn a little bit more in the background of that and why you see this particular issue, why as useful in thinking about sustainability, uh, sustainability solutions, why is it a, a good model system for us to be looking at? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, my research group, so uh, the, the collaborators, core collaborators on the Maine Shellfish Learning Network include Tony Sutton, who I already mentioned, and a PhD student who uh, we've been working with, um, Gabby Hillier. In terms of the longer history and the cultural values and the forms of attachment uh, that are associated with this fishery, we've been talking a lot about shell mounds, you know, those, those shell middens, the, the piles of oyster shells and clam shells and mussel shells that themselves, as a material form of evidence, <laughs> an entity, tell a story about the, you know, the, the relationship between people and shellfish that has occurred for millennia, you know, in, in terms of Wabanaki people's ongoing reliance on, on um, this uh, resource. Um, and so that's part of it is like attending to um, these stories within the landscape and what those stories can tell us about the multiple values of shellfish. Um, but then we've also seen, you know, and this is actually related to a, a project um, that Alice Kelly and Bonnie Newsom are leading to document these shell middens um, because, you know, these are ecosystems and, and these artifacts that are um, threatened, right, because of, of climate change. And, and I would also say um, colonial patterns of, of relating um, to the land. Um, and, and we're seeing these effects in the erosion of the shell middens um, and, and also in the steep declines in clam landings and uh, licenses. Now, it's not a simple relationship between, you know, warming ocean temperatures and changes in species composition like green crabs, where, you know, in some cases, this is definitely having a major impact on clam populations as the green crabs basically wipe them out. Um, However, there are a number of social forces that are also contributing to these kinds of, of changes where the clam landings, so the amount of clams or the weight of clams brought to market and sold every year is not a direct um, indicator for the health of clam populations. We don't actually have uh, data about that. Um, and so it, it makes us ask, okay, so, so if clam landings are going down and license sales are down, what else is going on here um, beyond the, the pressures from um, predation? Uh, and so competition among fisheries is, is really important influence here. The lobster fishery is um, a, a pretty powerful presence. And, and so um, there's a lot more we could say about that. Um, and issues related to uh, rural poverty and, and um, access to education resources and, and, and these kinds of things um, that uh, limit the kinds of fisheries that people uh, participate in. Um, 
a host of other, you know, economic and social and cultural influences as well. So it's it's a fishery that um, is in trouble, um, and yet at the same time, the the co-management system, although it's a colonial institution, the co-management system creates a social space that wouldn't other, otherwise exist in these communities. It creates uh, the exigence for people coming together to talk about what's going on and to, to make shared decisions and to come up with policies, you know, through their, their shellfish ordinances um, to try and sustain the resource into the future. Um, and so there's great opportunity there. And, um, and I think that there's also opportunity within the co-management system. This is something that we're, we're really starting to talk about um, in a focused way for decolonizing that system as well and thinking about what would it mean um, to do things like provide um, uh, licenses to tribal members or to, to recognize within these programs uh, tribal sovereignty and, and fishery and sustenance fishing rights. Tell us more about the co-management system, because that idea of it being an opportunity um, for decolonization is really is is interesting. Tell us how the licenses are assigned or given, because I think right now we're talking about municipal, right, at the municipal level, but that would be a different entity for a tribal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know that I have a good answer to that. Like I said, like we're really just starting to explore what this, this might mean, but we're interested in um, one of the origins that, that created the conditions essentially for, for co-management as a system to emerge in the 1800s. And one of these origins, an important one is um, the body of liberties, which was produced in 1640 and then revised in 1647. Some people have described the body of liberties associated with the Massachusetts Bay Colony Ordinance as the precursor to the Bill of Rights. So this was a, a set of rules that a couple of colonists came up with. There were something like 98 different rules, many of which were, were justice-oriented. Um, not all, because one of them made an exception um, that essentially allowed slavery um, to, to occur within New England. But they did have an orientation to, to justice and to, to protecting um, people's rights. And, and one of the key pieces of that was um, that they had a clause in there that granted the rights of access to the coast for fishing, fowling, and navigation. And so this is why in, in Maine and Massachusetts, you know, you can go and, and still dig clams and, and mussels um, simply by getting a, a municipal license. Um, and so that commitment to access, I think, is a core value. And it makes me wonder about how, how could that value be, that value of equitable access um, be broadened? That's, that's interesting. I had never heard of the body of liberties before. Maybe now is a good time to think back to some of the successes and challenges that have stood out to you in your work in this fishery. There's so many I like. <laughs> I guess I'll start. You know, I said a few things about successes um, before, um, 
And for me, you know, the work that we're currently able to do in the Maine Shellfish Learning Network stands as a a success. You know, the the development of this learning network organization in in and of itself, I'd describe as a success. But I think more importantly, one of the most important markers of success for me is the quality and persistence of the relationships that have made the learning network possible, right? Because those we've built over the last 10 years or more, um, where we've been working with with the same people and then obviously connecting with new people um, as the work grows. Um, but but those those relationships are the most important part of this. Um, w- without those, it just it wouldn't exist. Um, and of course, you know, through that, we've all, well, through that, we've been able to do some some really, I think, important things. Um, like uh, we've been making good progress on um, addressing a policy issue that has really constrained adaptive capacities within these communities. Um, so right now, uh, there are a number of of communities that are trying to grow clams so that they can then reseed their flats. But the issue is that doing so um, means they have to go through the whole aquaculture regulation process for what's called LPAs or limited purpose aquaculture. Uh, And we've heard from a a number of different towns that that this is just a barrier. Um, So we haven't like solve that problem yet, and I don't even know that that's <laughs> it's ever going to be solved in a final sense. But but we have initiated a process and and have made good progress towards understanding what could be done to address that issue, and then um, working first and foremost with DMR um, to try and uh, try and change um, how those projects are reviewed um, so that it falls within municipal shellfish co-management and not aquaculture. Um, and then in terms of challenges, um, I think it's also, you know, relationships, as I was saying earlier, um, that, that there's maybe a truism that, like, the longer you work with people, the easier it gets. I don't think that's always true <laughs> because, you know, the longer you work with people, the more complexities that arise, right? And And you have memories, uh, shared memories and experiences um, that can, can influence the, the course of a relationship um, and that you become part of your work together. Um, you have that shared history and, and sometimes that history can facilitate, but it can also potentially inhibit a collaboration as well. Um, and so uh, Donna Haraway describes this it's a similar kind of situation as, as one of staying with the trouble, right? <laughs> like staying with the trouble of, of those kinds of histories. Um, and yeah, so I, I reflect on that when the collaboration, when a challenge comes up in a collaboration, it's like, okay, what is this, what is this about? What does this help me understand about, about this situation or relationship and, and how can we work through it together? I know relationships have been central in all of your decision-making. I remember when you were trying to decide what to do post-PhD and your commitment to your community partners weighed heavily on your mind of wanting to persist and stay with this with this issue. So instead of you know, leaving it after four years, it didn't feel, didn't sit right with you. And I, and I can see relationships being so central in your work. 
both the pluses and minuses of these relationships. Yeah, and I think it's, uh, you know, it's really uh, the core part of, of knowledge co-production, right? We, we sometimes emphasize the applicability of the knowledge. Like if you produce knowledge in these more collaborative ways, is going to be seen as, as more relevant for decision making. People are going to understand it more. They're going to be able to incorporate it into, you know, whatever context they're working in. Um, but, you know, Sheila Jasanoff talks about in ways that are that really um, resonate with Karen, the constitutive approach to communication, right? The social construction part of, of knowledge co-production, where when you're engaging in these collaborative processes, you're changing your own identity and, and sense of self. And those relationships become uh, deeply meaningful, right? They're, they're enriching uh, in, in a person's life. Um, and in many ways, I think, push on the boundary between the personal and, and the professional. Um, and then it constitutes our organizations too. And, and the Main Shelters Learning Network is a really good example of that. It, it emerged out of these knowledge co-production processes that wouldn't exist otherwise. But then, you know, the stakes of that is that, yeah, when I graduated as a PhD, I I just wanted to keep doing the work that I was doing because it's, you know, it's meant so much in those ways. Karen, can I jump in there? I have a yeah, follow-up, if you don't mind. Um, so, Brady, um, I've been thinking about this question for the last half an hour, but then you um, mentioned just now how this work, as in your words, pushes the boundary between personal and professional. And it reminds me of a time, and I can never remember, you've been so great at, at quoting different people and remembering their names. I'm not good at remembering people's names. So this was just someone who was dealing with some difficult issues. And he said to me, well, at least I'm well therapized. And I don't, I took it to mean not necessarily that he had been to formal therapy a lot, although he may have, but it, it felt like he was talking about informally. He's been through a process that made him think about who he is. Um, question maybe some assumptions he had do the things that we stereotypically associate with like productive formal therapy and so um, I've really liked this idea of having kind of an informal therapeutic process as a part of self-development and my question to mm -hmm. you is how important is um, this idea of being well therapized and maybe associated with that having a lot of self-awareness in the field of communication, particularly the way that I perceive you to practice it, emphasizing mm. interpersonal relationships. I mean, maybe it might built into this question, I think is the implication that I think that it is important, but I'm interested in your thoughts on that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's such an interesting question. Um, there are a couple of things that I've been thinking about lately. Um, and, and one has been, to really like more fully attend to the emotional and affective dimensions of these kinds of collaborations um, because they are so much a part of the work that we're doing. And, and in any long-term collaboration, um, people are going to have triumphs, but they're also going to have deep grief. And I've, I've been in a number of partnerships at this point where people have lost loved ones or they go through a divorce. Um, or, you know, any number of things. And it requires, um, I think it really requires a, a level of compassion 
um, especially when you're working in a collaboration that's, say, grant-funded and you're feeling these kinds of pressures to produce, right? And these are the norms of, of our professional life um, in academia. Um, and, and it does mean, like, slowing down and saying, what's, what's most important here um, um, in terms of sustainability, right, and well-being? Um, so, so uh, you know, the focus on affect and emotion is an important part of communication. Um, a, a lot of communication scholars will talk about um, how communication, good communication, real communication requires vulnerability um, in an open sense of like being affected um, by another and, and within the world. I think there's a you know direct relationship between vulnerability and, and compassion, recognizing one's own vulnerability and the shared vulnerability of, of all around us as, as the basis for connection. And then I've also been increasingly wondering about, although I, I can't say that I've like done anything along these lines, but I'm, I'm interested in um, the role of spirituality in these collaborations. And part of what's made me wonder about that is um, some of the things that I've learned about the Penobscot River restoration effort and um, the, the role of uh, Wabanaki cultural traditions and spirituality um, in shaping um, the success they've had in, in you know, uh, removing dams and restoring the river. Um, and I think that might connect with, you know, your earlier question about some of those, like, what we might think of as therapeutic dis dispositions, but you know, in Buddhism, you could talk about it as mindfulness or meditative practice. Just one quick follow-up. As someone who's teaching for the first time a course in environmental communication, have you thought about how you can teach some of these skills? Because they feel less formal by their nature. How do you teach vulnerability, emotional intelligence, openness, when we know that they make a difference? Yeah. One of the ways I've been trying to learn how to do that <laughs> um, has been to um, help students uh, engage in dialogue themselves within the class and then, you know, inviting in guest speakers who um, are coming from different cultural backgrounds. So they're engaging in cross-cultural dialogue and, and we have, you know, guided discussions about the relationship between communication and, and as or dialogue as a form of communication, its relationship to vulnerability. Um, and I've heard students reflect that, you know, those, those kinds of discussions really help them um, with those kinds of processes. But I've also found that um, helping students connect with this place and, and, learn, literally learn from the Penobscot River. So our campus is on an island in the middle of the Penobscot River um, and, and encouraging them in different ways to show up for the river and um, to practice the listening skills with the river itself um, has also been transformative. And so for those students who maybe aren't, aren't ready to go there in terms of the cross-cultural communication or even further in terms of decolonial understandings of themselves in place. Um, I found some of those students are maybe at least ready to show up for the river and like relate to that place um, differently than they had before as a foundation for, for potentially more transformative meaning making. Hmm. Great, thank you.
follow up on this idea, Bridie, that you were just talking about, about showing up for the river and the significance of place. So you talked a lot about that, about the, this, the important, or you've mentioned it several times about the significance of the physical place of, of being out in the mud as part of the relationship building process. Mm -hmm. And in a recent talk, um, you talked about the power of the intertidal zone um, as mm -hmm. a place that holds special promise or power for addressing issues of colonization and systems of oppression. Talk to us about this intertidal zone and why it holds such significance. Yeah. yeah. Um, so when I started doing this work as a PhD student um, in focusing on environmental communication, this probably resonates with how you've been talking about environmental communication in your class this semester of being pragmatic and constitutive. So I was attending to those aspects, you know, how people were, were sharing information and then also constituting this, this thing of clam co-management. But I was noticing, you know, for example, in, in these shellfish meetings, how um, if they were held at low tide, the attendance was, was really reduced. Like clamors just didn't come because if they did, they would have it would have, the meeting would have cost them $300, right? Because they would have missed a tide or um, trying to schedule anything <laughs> with clamors and really needing to attend to the tidal stage. Um, and, and hearing them talk about, you know, places where they dig and the, the timing of, of their digging and how that was related to the tides, um, how in the summertime they try and dig double tides and that would, you know, leave them with a fat paycheck and also be, be really exhausted. <laughs> and I just noticed that the, the tides had a profound influence on communication. And that if I was to do engaged communication work in this region, I, I needed to figure out what it meant to work with the tides. Um, but over time, I've started to think about that um, in a more ontological way about, you know, the tides as not just a force or an influence, but as, as shaping reality. Um, and I've drawn from a number of different scholars who have, have worked with the tides in that kind of way. Um, and as a way of challenging um, oppressive, oppressive systems of power and colonialism. Um, so scholars like Kamu Brathwaite, who is a Caribbean poet and, and scholar, he originally turned me on to this idea of, or his work did, of, of tidalectics, of um, how um, tides can challenge these kinds of colonial binaries that order the world and that we talk a lot about in environmental communication in terms of nature culture divisions and these, these separations that are the basis for forms of domination. And then uh, other folks like Kiara uh, uh, Naputi and Edward Lisan who talk about like uh, archipelagic rhetorics or just these, these like oceanic ways of, of understanding um, and, and being in the world. And then finally, this, there's a great book called The Black Shoals by Tiffany Osabo King, 
Um, she she t- describes this tidal imaginary through the, the metaphor of a shoal. And so we've started to to try and t- try and work within these tidal imaginaries um, as powerful spaces of disruption, of disrupting like you know these forms of dominance of linear temporality of like this idea of like clock time, right? The tides as a as a different form of time. I mean clock time is also colonial time. Um and and so tides offer a different kind of temporality. Um tides in the kind of fluidity and the materiality can unearth um hidden histories. Um thinking about, you know, one material example um of, you know, a couple of years ago, tides revealing a Wabanaki boat um, and, and turning our attention to these these histories of contact that occur along the coast and that are connected to colonialism. So this is something I'm still obviously like <laughs> brainstorming through it and we're we're experimenting with it in our own, um, you know, praxis. Um, but it's, it's something I'm also uh, working on in a book. Um, I hope to, to write when I'm on sabbatical in two years. <laughs> that sounds like a nice time. You'll have to spend some time in the coast to get in the mindset of the tides. Yeah. That's that's no joke. I mean, that like when you start like orienting this way and like taking the ecological aspects of communication seriously, it means that, yeah, I am going to have to write at least part of this with alongside the ocean, right? And with, with yeah. the tides. Um, because I, I can't do that work without without that presence. Absolutely. And this idea of what's next as you're brainstorming, um, I don't want to say it in a linear way, but in a sense of what's next, what will be unearthed? <laughs> what might the next time bring for you? For this? Um, yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, Well, the book, and I, you know, I do have um, some things I'm still like trying to figure out in terms of audience and, you know, feeling the, the pressures of academia, but also wanting to write a book that my partners could read and um, make sense of on their own terms. Um, and so figuring out what, what that would mean in terms of what I eventually write. Um, the work with the Maine Shellfish Learning Network is is ongoing and, you know, paying close attention to what's going on with the Maine Indian Claim Settlement Act, which were tabled until the 2022 legislative session, but really spending some time building capacity for um, supporting those nego- negotiations and supporting the Wabanaki Alliance and the um, Maine Indian Tribal State Commission um, in those negotiations. Um you know the the mudflat is is a collaborative website, but it's also uh, an open ended product where we want to continue to build out these kinds of of learning resources and um, get feedback from from audiences and and have it be a community type of resource. Um, so we have a couple people coming on um, this summer who are going to help us do that. And then, like I said earlier, like. Just getting back out, <laughs> getting back out in the mudflat, um, connecting with people face to face. I mean, it's been amazing in during the pandemic and seeing the use of Zoom. We've really like um, 
been able to do some things like the virtual shellfish focus day. Um, we did uh, three events and had great attendance, had great harvester participation. This is, is not a, a community where, um, they typically use, you know, things like zoom and webinars and that kind of thing. And so I think that's been a, you know, one positive outcome is that we've seen some people, not all, but, but some be able to show up for more online forms of engagement, but I'm just so excited <laughs> to, to get back out and, and see people face to face and, um, you know, yeah, continue to build these relationships. I feel like that's when we think towards the future, that's where so many of us are at is just a re reorienting, reestablishing. Let's not think about necessarily new directions, but getting back to reconnecting with folks. Um, but it sounds like you've got some yeah. interesting next steps continuing along the similar focus of the fishery, um, but exploring it in new ways um, with new partners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and there are a number of, of collaborative projects that I didn't speak to uh, today, but doing some work uh, with the main EDNA project on on this really innovative approach to water quality monitoring that I think is is has a lot of promise um, for putting the water quality tools in the hands of community members um, so that they can you know uh, address pollution issues and and um, work to resolve them. Yeah, that sounds like fascinating work innovative on the state. Yeah. Well, Bridie, thank you so much for talking with us today. It's been wonderful to learn about your mm -hmm. work um, and to be inspired by it and to know that these collaborations are possible and um, can have real promise for, for helping address sustainability solutions. So thank you. Yeah, well, thank you for your great questions and for the invitation. I really enjoyed this conversation as always. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone. The Incoming Podcast is produced by myself, Stefan Partolo, and Courtney Hemmenwagner. We are a partner project of the International Association for the Study of the Commons and the International Journal of the Commons. To listen to more episodes, you can go to your local podcasting app and to our website, incommonpodcast.org. There you will also find our blog and a link to our Patreon account that you can use to give us a small donation to help us cover operating costs. You can also follow us on Twitter and on Instagram at InCommonPod.